Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our host, Steve Butler. On today's program, our series entitled, The Second Coming Versus the Rapture, as he opens God's Word to study the difference between the rapture and the second coming. It's time to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In our program today, we're going to move to point number five, point number five on our chart that is exploring the differences between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. And if you are new with us today, or perhaps uh, you have just started listening and have not downloaded the chart that this radio station has provided, uh, consider doing that. You just simply go to whcbradio.org, whcbradio.org, and look for Exploring Bible Prophecy, and you will find the chart that is being uh, provided on the differences between the rapture and the second coming, because it is um, absolutely loaded with scriptures that we are using as we have walked through the various uh, aspects of the second coming and the rapture of the church, because there are many, many differences to be explored. And we have so far gone through four of these um, points, the first three of which were basically an overview of the major differences, the major themes between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ to show that they are two separate and distinct events. And then in point four, where we have been for the last several programs, we are starting to unpack some of the specific points in each of those uh, uh, distinct events. So, for instance, in in, uh, point number four, we talked about being caught up with Jesus in the clouds uh, to be with him, and the point we wanted to make there was the point of forever. So that once we are raptured, whether we are raptured when we are alive, uh, which Paul, frankly, was expecting at the time he wrote uh, for instance, First uh, Corinthians 15, one of the great rapture passages. He was expecting to be raptured during his lifetime. So it's an imminent event. And when we are raptured, whether we are alive or we are uh, dead in Christ, or as the Bible says, asleep, we will be uh, taken up into heaven uh, to be with Jesus, given our glorified bodies, stand at the Bema Seat Judgment, which of course is a judgment only for our works on earth after we're saved. So we know from our study that um, Hebrews chapter 9 tells us there'll be no reference to sin when we stand before the Bema Seat, and then we will be uh, wedded to our Lord uh, as our bridegroom, and we will be his wife. And then we learned uh, in our uh, last uh, few programs that we come back with him as his wife to the earth when he sets up his kingdom that has been promised throughout the Old Testament. He sets up his kingdom for a thousand years, and we rule and reign with him. Uh, And that's based on references such as uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 27, and other places. So we have a glorious, uh, eternal future to look forward to with the Lord, so we will be with him wherever he is forever. And then in uh, point four under the second coming, we see Jesus coming back with his church, coming back with his angels in fiery glory, and we will be with him for that event. 
We will not participate in any of the battling that he does, uh, which he does at the Battle of Armageddon, for instance. And we went into some detail to explain uh, about the Battle of Armageddon. It's not actually at Armageddon. That's where they marshal their forces, but it's actually in Jerusalem, which is the center of the world as far as uh, God is concerned. So it's a battle for Jerusalem. And then we uh, saw a number of verses in Isaiah and Zechariah and so forth where Jesus sets up his kingdom and sets up a thousand years of peace. So now we've moved into uh, point number five, and that's where I'd like to start today. And looking at the column under the, the rapture of the church, the, uh, the heading is Jesus Appears to Church Age Believers Only. Now, this actually has two components to it. The obvious component is the one that it uh, involves the rapture of the church, that when the church is raptured up, uh, those that are found faithful in Jesus Christ will uh, disappear. Those that are on the earth will just disappear uh, in a moment. So the, the world will not see any of that activity, but only those that participate in it. But it actually has another component, and that involves Jesus in his glorified body walking the earth right after his death, burial, and glorious resurrection. Uh, As you probably know, if you've um, been a student of the Bible, you know that Jesus actually walked the earth for 40 days after he was resurrected from the grave. So Jesus walked among men in his glorified body, the type of body that we will have uh, when we see him in the rapture, a, a glorified immortal body. And what I want to do is spend some time uh, up front here with these first several verses from Second Second uh, Corinthians, John, Matthew, um, and First uh, Corinthians, as well as Luke, to give you an understanding of what it means to see Jesus and to not see Jesus. So even at the time that he walked the earth in his glorified body, only the believers saw him. Now we're talking about uh, actual physical sight and then compare that with spiritual sight. And the key point I want to try to help you understand in this program and probably the next couple of programs as we cover this point in point number five under the rapture is spiritual sight. It talks about having eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, that applies differently to uh, an unbeliever than to a believer. So let's go ahead and get into the scripture into uh, today's program. And let's look at Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, and I certainly pray that you do, because one of the, the main points about exploring Bible prophecy is to be able to learn how to explore your Bible, how to study your Bible, because that is what glorifies God. He tells us, uh, uh, he tells us that to be about his work and to know everything we can about him are the two things that glorify him. And we're told in the scriptures that we, our purpose for being on this earth is to please him and to glorify him. So we're doing uh, right here uh, one of the things that glorifies God. So I pray that you um, you see that the same way that you have your scriptures. And uh, if you've worn your Bible out, bless you. Um, if, you've, if your Bible's worn out, you won't wear out. 
But if you are opening it for the first time, then praise the Lord that you are getting into his word because the word, the power is not in the word. The power is the word, the power of God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. So if you're in your Bible and you find, for instance, the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you get to Acts, then to Romans, then you get into the two books of Corinthians, and we want to move to the second book of Corinthians that uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in southern Greece, and we want to move to chapter 5, and um, a student of the Bible, when they hear Second Corinthians 5, one of the first things they think of is the Bema Seat the judgment seat of Christ that the raptured church will stand before to be rewarded uh, for what they had done on the earth as Christians uh, to glorify God. We find that in um, basically the paragraph. And, of course, I say a paragraph in the Bible. If you have a Bible that has bolded numbers, for instance, in my Bible, verse 6 in Second Corinthians 5 is bolded. Everything from that bolded number down to the verse just before the next bolded number is basically a thought or a paragraph. So I find that quite helpful when I'm looking for passages. I kind of get an idea of how far the thought goes just by looking for those bolded numbers. So we're, you know, for instance, uh, down from 6 down to 10, it's talking about the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And then we get on down, and we want to get into the passage that uh, I want to share today and to uh, unpack some of that, our verses 14 to 17. So if you would, let's, uh, let's look at 14 to 17, and what I'll do is read it first and then go back and let's talk about it. Verse 14, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Verse 15. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So there's several reasons why I wanted to share this particular passage with you in the context of uh, Jesus appearing to church-age believers only, is looking at the spiritual aspect of this. So if we go back up to verse 14, and it says, for the love of Christ controls us. And of course, we know that there's a triune Godhead. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And when Christ glorified, was glorified and went back to heaven, and we see that in Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, that uh, when he left, he said, I would not leave you. And then we're in John 14. He says, I'm not going to leave you completely. I'm going to send a helper. Well, the helper is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells the, the life, the body, if you will, of a believer. So when it says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, that's through the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit. And we'll get to that in just a moment in, in some detail in John 14, which is our next verse on our handout. But let's continue on here in this passage. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Now, the one person who died for all and therefore all died was Adam. Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, they broke that um, relationship with the Lord where the Lord had promised them eternal life and even gave them the tree of life in the garden that they could eat from and therefore have eternal life. And when they sinned, the price of sin was death. And, of course, Satan had said, surely you won't die one of the first great lies of Satan to mankind. But indeed, man would die. And to to ensure that, uh, when Adam and Eve were were, uh, removed from the garden because of their sin, God placed that angel with the flaming sword so that they could not come back in. Because why would they want to come back into the garden? To get to the tree of life so that they could continue to live forever. So they were uh, restricted, barred from doing that, and therefore they would die. So the point here in 14 is that one died for all, therefore all died. And then look at the next verse, 15, and he, and if you notice in my Bible that's capitalized to make the point that that we're talking about deity here, and in this case we're talking about Jesus, obviously, from the context of the verse. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So you see from the context of that scripture, the all there, Jesus indeed died for all, but it was only going to be those who believed that would be the benefit of his death. They saw his death as the death of the Son of God. Those who would not accept the, the his death as meaning anything other than the death of a person would see him as the son of man. But to those who saw him as the son of God, they would live. And the point there being that that's a believer, that these are people who ultimately will live forever, forever. whether you die physically or are alive uh, when he comes for you, you will be raised up and will be given an eternal, um, immortal body and live eternally with him. So the point here is he died for all so that they, those believers who live, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So he's trying to say now, it's no longer about you. It's no longer about me. Once we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, it's all about him. And we want to live our lives to glorify him because he died for us. And the reason he died for us is so that we would have the hope and hope, actually in the, in the English translation, is confident expectation, that we would have the confident expectation of eternal life with him. And it changes your whole perspective and the way you see him and the way you see life and the way you see other believers is that from that point on, that point of salvation, of justification, uh, as you move into sanctification, becoming more and more Christ-like, you know that the end, end game, if you will, is going to be eternal life for you. And he wants to make that point clear here, that he died and rose again on our behalf so that we would live, and by that meaning, live forever. So when we change our perspective from no longer being inward-focused to being outward-focused, uh, 
primarily to Christ and to the church, but also to the world. We see the world in a different way. That brings about verse 16, therefore, and of course, therefore is a term of conclusion. So he's saying that what I told you above that, I'm now concluding and bringing it all together and making a statement from everything I just told you. Verse 16, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. It's no longer about the flesh. It's about the spirit because it's the spirit that will live forever. And yes, we will have our body, but it's a spiritual aspect when we see Jesus at the, at the Bema seat judgment that it's no longer about the physical flesh because that's going to go away. And the body we receive will no longer be a flesh that decays, but a flesh, a flesh-like that will be immortal and will live forever. So therefore, verse 16, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, and that was before they were saved, yet now we know him in this way no longer. So we don't look at Christ as the Son of Man. We look at Christ as the Son of God. And verse 17 for conclusion, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and if anyone's a believer, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The only thing, the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So we are a new creation in Christ. And you know, it's interesting. There's only three entities, if you will, that are called um, uh, creations of God. Adam was created directly from God. The angels were created directly by God. And a Christian, in this verse right here, you are a new creature. You are created directly by an act of God. So you, you, Adam, and the angels are the only three that are creation, created directly from God. How awesome is that point? Okay, we want to um, answer a question from a listener now, so we'll pick up this series on point number five uh, in our next program. We have a question from a listener in Bristol does the Antichrist have an identity according to the Bible? Does the Antichrist have an identity according to the Bible? That's a great question. The Antichrist uh, that is revealed to the world at the beginning of the tribulation is described in a couple of ways, both um, geographically, and we'll look at that, and by his special, special attributes and his special actions that actually help to single him out uh, as a special person. So first, let's look at Daniel chapter 9. Let's see if we can get some geography. Where might this fellow come from? So if we go in our Old Testament of the Bible and go into roughly the middle of it, you'll find Isaiah, and then you'll find Jeremiah, and then Lamentations, another book of Jeremiah, then you get into Ezekiel, and then you get into Daniel. And if you've gone into Hosea with the first of the minor prophets, you've gone too far, bring it back to the left. So we're looking for Daniel chapter 9, and let's look at verse 26. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. This is one of the greatest prophecies in the Bible. 
This is a prophecy called Daniel's 70 weeks and specifically uh, about the tribulation, which is called Daniel's 70th week, 70th and final week. And in Daniel 9, verse 26, it reads, Then after the 62 weeks, uh, and of course then there's the seven weeks uh, before that mentioned in 25, so now we're talking a total of 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So we have a whole different series uh, that we have on this ex- program exploring uh, Bible prophecy that we get into this in a great detail. But for the purposes of answering this, we want to look at 26 and see the key point here says, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, we know from uh, secular history that the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary were destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. So the phrase, the people of the prince who is to come, gives us a, a reference now. So who is this prince who is to come? So let's go to Daniel 927, and it says, He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And it goes on with some further descriptions. So basically we're reading that this man who comes from the Roman Empire is the one who will make a covenant with the many for one week, which is that 70th week, which is the tribulation. And he will put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering at the midpoint. So that is the Antichrist. So we know then that the Antichrist will come from somewhere within the revived Roman Empire. And that is basically described in the same book of Daniel, chapter 7. So go back to Daniel, uh, chapter 7, and let's look at verse 23. Daniel, chapter 7, verse 23. And it says in verse 23, Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And that is a yet-to-be-seen yet to kingdom. It's the fourth kingdom um, that happens yet future, uh, just before the Lord comes back at the second coming. So that's the kingdom that will be uh, basically ruling the world and the Antichrist being the ruler during that period of time uh, just before the Lord comes back. So that's a location, a geographic uh, description of the Antichrist being from the revived Roman Empire or basically Europe. Maybe we can be that specific. And then let's look at uh, some of his actions during that time to help define him. So let's go stay in the book of Daniel and let's go to Daniel chapter 11. And in the passages we're going to be looking at in Daniel chapter 11, those verses uh, deal with the Antichrist. And the reason I say that is the verses up above that deal with um, an individual uh, who existed around 100 and, oh, I don't know, 170 B.C. and actually ruled over Israel, and his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was the type and shadow of the Antichrist. He did a lot of the things that the real Antichrist will yet do 
in the future tribulation. And we read in Daniel chapter 11, verses 36 and 37, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. Verse 37, He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers, or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. So you can see that this is a person who has got a rather well-defined ego complex, because he is basically saying, I'm going to establish myself as God. And just as a quick side note here in verse 37, because it's often misinterpreted, it says that he will uh, not have a desire. He will not have a regard for the desire of women. At the time uh, that Christ was on the earth, the greatest desire of women—I uh, shouldn't say before he was actually before he was on the earth in the Old Testament—they knew that this Messiah was coming. I should say, and the desire of women was that they would be the. Uh, the mother of this Messiah, ultimately the mother of Jesus. So basically what this is saying is he has no desire or interest in Jesus Christ, which was the desire of women to be the mother of Christ. And then finally, let's look at some of his attributes. So let's go to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13, the very end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 13. And let's look at um, verses 2 through 8. It says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal womb was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name was was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So we see that this Antichrist not only has a geographic identity, but we can also identify him from his actions that he will take during the tribulation, and we can also see a list of his attributes, the type of terrible person that this Antichrist will be. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on today's Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.